We are in the book of Ruth. We are doing 10 verses tonight. I don't know that I've ever preached 10 verses before. Um, average 3.75 verses through 3 John. So I'm going to need some help tonight from God. So we're in the book of Ruth, right after the book of Judges. <coughs> this is essentially part two of our sermon series through the book of Ruth. I imagine there'll probably be at least 10 total sermons, at least. So our second week in the book of Ruth, and what I would like to do for the sake of continuity is just quickly and carefully recap the events that took place in, uh, in covering verses 1 to 5. What you need to know is that this book is named after one of the, the main characters, Ruth. Ruth the Moabite. And it is truly remarkable that this book is named after Ruth. Because she was a Moabite, a fact that both the narrator and Boaz emphasized multiple times throughout. So she's not an Israelite. That might not seem like a big deal. Of the 39 books in the Old Testament, this is the only book in the Old Testament named after a non-Israelite. Truly remarkable. And while we don't know who the author is, we do know the date of this writing would have been sometime after 1010 BC with the coronation of David as king based on the genealogy of Ruth in the fourth chapter. So this book would have been written sometime after 1010 BC. However, the events that took place in this event, the, excuse me, the events that took place in this book would have transpired at least probably a hundred years prior to 1010 BC. The story opens up the rather bleak setting. There's a famine, and it's during the days of the judges. So there are no kings in Israel at this point in history. This is pre-Israel monarchy. And it opens up in the days of the judges. And times are difficult, and there is a famine in the land. And the story centers upon a man named Elimelech. You may remember his name means... My God is king. His wife Naomi, their two sons, Malon and Kilion. They, they are ethnically from Bethlehem. And of course, there's a little more irony, as we said last week. There's a famine in Israel and Bethlehem. And Bethlehem means house of bread. So there's no bread in the Wonder Bread factory. It's kind of weird here. First, first use of irony that's dropped into the story. And so Elimelech makes the decision to move his family to Moab. To Moab. Do we have a map of Moab? There's a map. So you can see Bethlehem over my shoulder. And there's Moab. Apparently there's no famine in Moab. So Elimelech makes the decision to move his family to Moab. As we said last week, Moab and Israel have had strained relations. The Israelites don't exactly have a very positive view of the Moabites. There's really no other way to say this. They have a rather... A slutty view of the Moabites. They, they don't look at them with much approval at all. And this is for several reasons, as we said last night. And this is because the Moabites are from this incestuous relationship between Lot and his oldest daughter. You may remember in Genesis, Abraham is worried about his nephew Lot. 
He lives in Sodom and Gomorrah. So he prays. God intervene. God sends his angels. God rescues Lot and his family. They come out of Sodom and Gomorrah before it's destroyed. Lot's wife turns to a pillar of stone. Fast forward, Genesis 19. Lot's living in a cave with his two daughters. And his daughters are worried about girl stuff, you know, that I'm never going to meet a guy, that I'm going to be lonely forever, I'm never going to have kids. And so the oldest daughter convinces the youngest daughter to come up with this plan and go along with it, that they're going to get their dad drunk, and then they're going to have sex with him. For that way, they'll at least get to have a chance to have kids. The oldest daughter gets pregnant and gives birth to a little baby boy named Moab. Israelites don't exactly have a very positive view of the Moabites and all their different gods that they worship, including Chemosh, their, their chief god. And there's, there's other reasons, but for the sake of brevity, that's, I think, paints a pretty clear picture of the disdain that Israel has for the Moabites. And this will be a very significant factor in our text and story today. So Elimelech makes a decision to move his family to Moab. There's no food in Israel. There's food in Moab. At first, it doesn't seem like a bad decision. Move the family to Moab. They got food. What's the big deal? But as we saw last week, the decisions, guys, that we make, a few of you guys are married. Most of you guys are single. The decisions that you make for your family they affect more than just you. They affect your wife. affect your kids. You make a decision to move your family from one place to another. You're setting up who, who's your wife going to be friends with? Who are your kids going to be friends with? Who are they going to meet and maybe one day fall in love with and marry? You make the decision to move your family to, to some place. You, you effectively decide where we're going to be a part of a church, if we're going to be a part of a church. At first glance, it doesn't seem like a really big deal, the decision for Elimelech to move his family to Moab. And yet, as we studied and learned last week, it seems that he has forgotten what his very name means, that my God is king. And he seemingly only evaluates the situation based on an economic factor. Nothing more, nothing less. And it ends with tragic consequences. Makes the, the move, they get to Moab, because there's food, gotta have food, you don't have food, you starve, you starve, you die. Gotta do that. And then Elimelech dies. Tragic. Naomi is burying her husband. Why did, why, why did, as we said last week, why did Elimelech move the family to Moab so they, so they wouldn't die? And now Elimelech's dead. And then his two sons marry women. They have no business marrying. They get involved in these relationships they have no business getting involved with. And then Naomi's sons, Malon and Kilion, they too die. It's just tragic. It's heartbreaking. And the whole reason Elimelech made the decision to move the family so they wouldn't die, and now they're, they're, they're dead. God alone, as I said last week, holds life and death in his hand. And the decisions that we make, 
for our families, they affect our families. They affect more than just us. Elimelech seemingly forgot that his God was king, evaluated circumstances simply through an economic lens, only to meet death. And so now Naomi's been living there some ten years with her two daughters-in-law, Orpah and Ruth. She's stuck there. She can't go home. She's, she's stuck there in Moab. It's a rather bleak situation. Perhaps some of you feel a little like Naomi. It's been a rough 10 days. It's maybe been a rough 10 weeks. Maybe it's been a rough 10 months. And it just feels like, (coughs) does anybody care? Does God even care? Like, is is he even listening to me anymore? Has he forgotten about me? Because honestly, it's just things haven't been going so hot for me lately. Not a lot of hope. Like some of you, perhaps you feel very much like Naomi right now. Perhaps literally like her, you've, you've buried people that you love and care about. You've had to say goodbye to people that you love and care about. And you're just exhausted. She's been doing this 10 years. It's gotta be tiring. And then verse 6, a little ray of sunshine. Some of you guys need some hope today. Yeah, so did Naomi after 10 years. Verse 6, then she, then she, that's Naomi, then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she, Naomi, had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited, that's a key word, he had visited his people and given them food. There's Naomi. In the midst of her grief, of her suffering, of her pain, of just maybe her emotionally and spiritually just being exhausted, something happens. She hears that the Lord had visited his people. Visited, this word, it has a wide range of meanings. It usually occurs in military contexts where it means to assemble, to count, to muster men for battle. But within a theological context such as this, get this, it typically means to visit. But, but it can either be a visit for good or a visit for bad. The, the positive context here reveals that this is certainly a, a good visit. So essentially what what is saying here, this word is meaning that the Lord has visited, that is, the Lord has intervened on behalf of, the Lord has come to the aid of. Yahweh has intervened on behalf of His people. Yahweh has come to the aid on behalf of His people. He has visited His people. The famine's over. Naomi gets to go home. It's been a long time since she's been home. A long time. The rains have returned, and the crops are starting to grow. Verse 6 is a message of hope. A message of hope for all of those of us who are in a dry place, 
in our own desert. It's a message that, that God hasn't forgotten his people. Some of you need to be reminded of that. He hasn't forgotten you. It may seem like that, but he hasn't forgotten you. Church, he hasn't forgotten you. Like, he loves you. We need to be reminded of these things. Romans 5.8, right? But God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He loves you. He loves you. He hasn't forgotten about you. But God shows his love for us. He shows his love for us. Oh, church, he loves you. He hasn't forgotten you. He hasn't rejected you. He loves you. He hasn't forgotten you. He hasn't forgotten you. He hasn't forgotten you. It may seem that way. It may seem that you've been living in another country, a godless place, where Naomi may be the only person who loves God there. It may just seem like this dry desert. When is, when is this storm? When am I going to get out of this just not very nice place in my life? When is this going to end? And verse 6 is a message of hope that Yahweh has visited his people. That God has intervened on behalf of his people. That God has come to the aid of his people. And given them food. Bethlehem means house of bread. Like, like God has come and restocked the house of bread. This is good news. This is good, good news. Verse 7, it says, So she, that's Naomi, she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, Orpah and Ruth, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. Stop. She's excited. She's pumped. We get to go back. And so they pack up stuff. They're on their way. And sometimes we do this like, in the middle of our excitement, we don't necessarily think of things. We just make a decision. Oh, this is awesome. So I'm going. And then halfway along the way, we start thinking, huh, I wonder if this was such a good idea. Right? Maybe we shouldn't have done this. And Naomi begins thinking things over. Like, huh, I wonder if Orpah and Ruth should be coming with me. Probably should say something. Yep, should say something. Verse 8. She speaks. Go. Go. Orpah Ruth, go. Return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. Go. Go. It's best for you guys to go. You need to go back. Go back to the house of your mother. Go back, guys. Go back. And then she, she prays, may, may the Lord deal kindly with you. That word kindly is important. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. Uh, the word kind, or kindness, or kindly, depending on your translation, it is it, the original word is hesed or hesed. And uh, as one commentator notes, this cannot be translated with one English word. 
Because, because this word, it has and encompasses and, and wraps itself up all these different positive attributes of God, like His love and His faithfulness and His mercy and His grace and His loyalty. It's more than just, just kindness. It refers to acts of devotion on, be, on behalf of His people that go well beyond any type of requirements of duty. So she's calling on this divine hesed, this divine hesed, this divine covenant kindness to bring about the opposite of the pain and, and grief that these women have been experiencing for a very long time. And she says, go. You guys got to go back. Go return each of you to her mother's house. The, the phrase, house of your mother, interesting phrase, and it, it typically involves uh Thoughts like love and marriage. What Naomi is saying here is you guys need to go. She is releasing them to remarry. And and support for this is found in the very next verse, which says this. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband, or, or maybe future husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices, and they wept. They're going to do a lot of crying today, just heads up. Uh, that happens e- easily, right? You're, you're with somebody you care about. One person starts crying, and then it's just like you just you start crying. And they're doing a lot of crying today because I, I want to be very fair to represent <coughs> Na- Naomi today. Um, she loves these girls a lot. She really, really loves these girls, and it might be a little confusing because because we were like, all right, if she loves them, why is she you know telling them to go? No one say, well, if she loves him, she needs to let him go. Because that's just, you hear that right? If you love them, let them go. Like, that's just dumb. <laughs> she loves, she loves these girls. She loves them so much. And so it's hard to kind of wrap her mind. Like, why is she telling them to go? They're crying. They're upset. In fact, in the very next verse, and they said to her, no, we will return with you to your people. So, so why is she telling them to go, and they clearly don't want to go, they want to go with her? And you need to understand this. Okay, this is really important, because you say, well, they've been through so much together. Like, why in the world would Naomi send them away? In this world, in the ancient Near East, and you really got to wrap your mind around this, guys. In the ancient Near East, a woman's security and well-being would be directly directly tied to a link with another male in her life, be it a father, be it a husband, or if your husband died, your male children, they could take care of you. So Naomi's thinking through these things. She's thinking about the implications of this, and she's thinking, these girls have a lot better chance if they go back to Moab. If they stay there, they can find husbands there. She's not very confident they're going to be able to, to meet Nice Israelite boys. And it's going to be very, very clear in a second. And so widowhood, as all three of these women are widows, would often mean alienation or destitution. So you say, well, how could, what's going on with Naomi? This is what she's thinking. She's thinking very much from an economic perspective. And that culture, your well-being, ladies, would be directly dependent upon a guy. So we've got to wrap our minds, because 2016 is a lot different than the ancient Near East. That was huge. 
And this is obviously playing a huge factor in why Naomi is telling them they need to go, go, just go. And Naomi here, like her husband at this part of the story, seems to be looking at things through an economic lens. And that's not a bad way. It's not a bad way to view things. It's just an incomplete way, especially if that's the only perspective that you have. It's a a problem when the dollars and cents signs, when the economic lens is basically the only true north on your compass. If If that's all you're basing your decisions off of, then it becomes problematic. Verse 11. Verse 10, remember, they say they don't want to go. Verse In verse 9, they just started crying. Verse 10, they don't want to go. Verse 11, but Naomi said, turn back, my daughters. Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? This is a rhetorical question. She's not saying, hey, like, seriously, like, why would you come with me? Like, is it because I'm awesome? Like, she's not asking that. She's not asking for feedback here. It's like, like, why would you come with me? It's, it's really more of a rebuke here. She's essentially saying, Orpah, Ruth, guys, it's going to be very foolish if, if you come with me. It's going to be much better for you guys if you go back to Moab, if you go back to your home, if you go back to your country. Don't you see that? How can you not see that, guys? And then she says, Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? At this point, Naomi is a little annoyed. There is a certain curtness, a certain annoyance, a certain almost rudeness when she says, Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Womb here? That's not the word she's actually using in the original language. She's not using the word for womb. She's using the word for intestines. She's literally like, uh, Orpa, Ruth, seriously, be realistic. Like, do I have like babies in my guts right now? Like for you to marry? I don't think so. There's, there's nothing going on inside of here. She's a little, little annoyed. Like in, in her mind, Naomi's a realist. Maybe some of you are like Naomi, like, that, clearly, that's, this is, this is dumb for them to come. They should not come. That's, that's, I think, the picture we see of Naomi. She's very realistic in what to do here. And she's saying, please go back. Go back. Go back. And at this point, when she makes the comment at verse 11, have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? At this point, there is a huge assumption that the narrator allows us in on to see made on the part of Naomi. When she says, have I yet sons? The assumption is this, is that Naomi believes that she is the only source for which her widowed daughters-in-law have any chance of meeting a husband. Remember what I said when I recapped this sermon. The Israelites view the Moabites in a not-so-nice way. She knows what it's like to live as a foreigner in another country. And she knows that they are not going to exactly fit in. They're Moabites. Like, they're going to have a hard time integrating probably socially. Like, they probably, and she knows, they probably have a better chance of being struck by lightning than actually meeting a nice Israelite boy. In a culture in which a woman's welfare, just making it, was so dependent upon another guy. That's, that's taking you inside her thinking right now. She's thinking, no, this is ridiculous. Like you've got zero chance of being a nice guy, let alone even really fitting into our culture, our way of life. You need to go back. She loves her daughters. Make no mistake about that. But she's a realist. It makes better sense for them to go back to Moab. 
go back to their families. They're going to be taken care of. Verse 12. Turn back, my daughters. Orpah, Ruth, turn back. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say, I have hope. Even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, verse 13, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? Orpah Ruth, you've got to be realistic. This is how the world works. This is how the world is. Be realistic. You're not going to fit in that well. And, and you've got pretty much no chance at all of meeting a husband. Naomi is a realist. Naomi is someone who is viewing things realistically. She's not wrong in the assumptions that she's making. She's just forgetting, perhaps, the other factors. Like the fact that her husband's name means my God is king. She thinks she's forgetting that. Then she says this. No, my daughters. No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. We have a tendency sometimes to idolize people, whether they're an athlete, you know, a TV personality, or Bible character. I'll be honest, um, as I've been preparing these sermons, I've, I've actually begun to see like the type of person that Naomi is. I. Up until a couple weeks ago, I, I had her on a much higher pedestal. And what we see here and her comments at the end of verse 13, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake, the hand of the Lord has gone against me, is we see a bitter old woman who blames God for everything that's gone wrong in her life. Naomi is angry at God. She's mad at him. She's frustrated with him. And she blames him for the cards that she's been dealt. Verse 6 was an awesome message of hope, encouragement to Naomi. Instead of, at this point, thanking God, she has no thankfulness. What she has is accusation. God's been unjust to me. God's not been fair with me. As one commentator notes, her faith is apparently not as mature or orthodox as some would think. I've heard people say that you want to get to know someone, see how they react and handle situations when it doesn't really go too well. You're saying, is it wrong for Naomi to hurt and be upset? I don't think it's wrong for Naomi to hurt and be upset. She has every reason to hurt and be upset. But God has just come through in a huge way. 
For her, it's like he's been silent for, for a while. And, and now here in verse 6 is this message of hope. Hasn't forgotten about his people. He's come to the aid of his people. He's intervened on behalf, on behalf of his people. He's visited his people. And she's got nothing positive to say. There, there is no spirit of thanksgiving. It's, I'm angry. I'm mad. I don't like the cards that I've been dealt. And she accuses God of being just. You like that? Is, that? is that you tonight? I don't know. Verse 14. Then they lifted up their voices and they wept again. Lots of crying, I told you. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. Orpah's gone. Orpah gets it. She's gone. But Ruth is there clinging to her. I just imagine like Naomi standing there and then like Ruth's just sitting on the floor like grabbing her legs or something. Like Ruth, it doesn't matter like how logical Naomi can be, how many arguments she can make. She's not having this. She's not going. She's not leaving her mom. She's not leaving her. And then Naomi makes another troubling comment here in verse 15. And she said, this is Naomi speaking, See, see Ruth, your sister-in-law, see Orpah, she's gone back to her people and to her gods. Ruth, go back. Return to your sister-in-law. It's a troubling comment that she makes. Now, anyone else? They might make this comment. They would, they would associate one's gods as a part of one's national entity. But the perspective on the part of some way, of someone who is from Israel, this Yahwistic perspective, kind of messed up a little bit. Kind of messed up. It's troubling, to say the least. Like, troubling. Like, this would be like, say, Diana... Say she had like an Islamic background. Say I died and my mom's, you know, for whatever reason, she's evaluating the situation economically and she's like, Diana, you need to go back. Like for whatever reason, like she argues with her, you need to go back. It makes better sense. Go back to Allah. Go back to Islam. You'd be like, what the heck is wrong with you, Mama Phyllis? <laughs> no! I don't care how much like dollars and cents like that, that makes, like how much sense that makes. That's not the right answer. One commentator says this, if Naomi represents the highest level of faith in Israel, it's no wonder Yahweh had sent this famine on the land. Like, if this is like the cream of the crop, like, she's, we would probably say, like, she's not very solid. Like, that's what we use the word solid. Like, oh man, that girl is solid. That guy's so solid. Uh, she's not really solid here. Like, oh, but that prayer, she prayed that really nice prayer in verse 8. Right? Where she says, verse 8, may the Lord deal kindly with you. And at this point, it kind of reveals that that was no more than just a surface level prayer. Like, like you'd be like, okay, this, this girl needs to read her Bible a little bit more. Like, she's got this Instagram Christianity thing going on, right? Where it's like, okay, like, click, you know, like, that's, okay, we're good for the day. Like, that's, that's, She's not very solid. Like, her, her faith really isn't all that deep. These are troubling comments that she's making. Like, she needs maybe to, to, to read the scriptures a little bit more. And perhaps that would also help with the anger and bitterness that she has. 
Are you like her? You've got this anger and this bitterness and you're mad at God because he hasn't treated you the way you wanted to be treated because, because you just haven't got really good cards. Life hasn't played out the way that you wanted it to. Let me be clear. Like, God owes you nothing. He doesn't owe you anything. The fact that you're sitting here, the fact that you're breathing is more than you deserve. Way more than you deserve. And I'm not saying that because I imagine there's people here today and maybe they feel like her and they're hurting and there's deep pain going on. See, you don't know what's going on in my life. I don't. Where's your spirit of thanksgiving? You want some advice? Take that anger and bitterness you have toward the Lord and use all that energy to repent. And ask Him to give you a heart of thanksgiving. You might be going through some tough stuff now. I got that. Could be a lot worse. You'd be like Asia Bibi. I prayed for her at the beginning of the service. Right? This, This woman... This Christian woman in Pakistan who's on death row and unless God shows up and intervenes, she will die. She will die. He owes us nothing. The fact that we're sitting here and we're breathing far more than we deserve. Are you like her? And you've just been battling with this anger and this bitterness that you have toward God and life hasn't played out the way you want it to play out. I get it. I would call you to repent. I'd call you to repent. I'd, I'd say repent. That's, that's not the right attitude to have. It's not. Ask him to give you a heart of thanksgiving. I promise you, if you think about it, you've got way more going on right now than you even deserve. Like, did you have food today? I doubt, like, I seriously doubt, like, anybody didn't have food to eat today, unless it was your own choice. And there's people who died today because they didn't have food. Are you like her? You need to let go of this anger and bitterness that you have toward God because you feel like he hasn't been fair. He doesn't owe you anything. He doesn't owe us anything, guys. You like her and I got it. You know, you're a realist. So you evaluate things. It's not wrong to evaluate things with this economic lens, it just becomes a problem when that is your only indicator of true north. Let me be clear. Just because something might make more sense economically, it might just make more sense, doesn't mean that that's the way that you're supposed to go. She makes this decision. I don't want you to come with me. Why? Because it doesn't make sense for you to come with me. Okay, you got a better chance of getting hit by lightning than you do meeting a guy. Okay, that may be true, but Naomi, Naomi, Remember your husband's name, Elimelech? His name means my God is king. What are kings? They're strong and they're powerful and they're authoritative. Kings can get things done. When no one else can get it done, kings can. It might might not make sense. So my call for some of you is, maybe some of you, you've been just basing everything in your life just off of, well, this, in terms of dollars and cents and what makes the best, what makes the best financial decision. And, And you really, 
Maybe some of you, there's, there's a call for you in your life, and, and you're like, well, I can't go that way. I can't go that direction. Because that doesn't make sense financially, or whatever it may be. I'm telling you, if you're feeling that call, that pull, that tug, or whatever it is to, to do that, I, I don't know, I don't know. I don't know where you're at. I don't know what's going on. I, I think it's for somebody needs to hear this tonight. Then trust him, right? Remember Limelech, he makes the decision to move so they don't die because they don't have food. They move there, and then what happens? He dies. Like, God is sovereign over all things. He can make things happen even against all statistical improbability. I want you to have a big, big view of God. A huge view of God. This is the God who tells the mountains, move, and they move. Are you like her? Maybe you are. I don't know. But I'd like to pray for you, nonetheless. So as the band comes, I just want to pray for you. I just want to pray for you right now, guys. God, I thank you for this story. It's a great story. It's just a real story, a raw story. I love this story. And I ask that you help, God, those of us in here who have just been holding on to angerness or bitterness <coughs> towards you, maybe towards another person. I don't know. But verse 6 was clearly a message of hope, and Naomi just seemingly kind of its an afterthought. So I pray that you'd create in us a spirit of thanksgiving. Maybe things aren't working out the way we thought they were going to. But surely, surely you, you have given us more than what we deserve, no matter what, like, like bar none. And God, perhaps some of us, like, you're, you're calling us to, to go a certain direction in our life, but like Naomi and like Elimelech, like we're simply evaluating things through the economic lens. Maybe that's because people are putting pressure externally on our life that, well, that wouldn't make sense. Or whatever that is, no, don't do that. God, I pray that we would trust you. And even if it's a statistical improbability to go in this direction, I pray that we would listen to that call of whatever it may be for us in our lives, that we would trust you remembering, you know what? Yeah, like humanly, it might be impossible, but our God is king. And kings are strong. And kings are powerful. And kings can get things done. So help us, God. Give us a, a heart of thanksgiving, breakthrough, pride and anger and bitterness and resentment. And help us to trust you. To cling to you as Ruth did her mom. Amen.